Today's first scripture reading is from the Psalter, Psalm 146. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no help. When his breath departs, he returns to his earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, thy God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Listen again for God's word to us. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he was there. Yet he couldn't escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him. And she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, For saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. And so she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went by the way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in a prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word With the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true to your everlasting goodness and insofar as it helps us grow in relationship with you and our neighbors, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love 
and grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In our scripture passage this morning, Jesus was trying to get away. News of Jesus as a great teacher and a healer with authority had been spreading. And as Mark 6 notes, quote, people recognized Jesus and ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, the countryside. They placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. So with the crowds after Jesus, Jesus and his disciples decided to leave Galilee and go to Tyre, presumably to rest. And going to Tyre was a big deal because it meant leaving their Jewish communities in Galilee. Tyre was an ancient, wealthy Gentile trading city located on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And of course, when they got there, Jesus went into a house, presumably of a friend or a supporter, and he didn't want anybody to know that he was there. But it was then, right away, that a Gentile woman of Syrophoenician origin came looking for Jesus, having heard that he was in town and trusting in faith that he could do something to help her little girl, given all the help that he had given others. In Matthew's recounting of this moment, the woman found Jesus and cried out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed, and she's suffering terribly. Matthew goes on to say that Jesus' disciples asked Jesus to send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. A pastor named Jane Hunt captured the drive of this Gentile woman in a reflection on this passage as follows. Quote, I know the woman Jesus meets in our gospel lesson today. I know her for I have seen the desperate pleading look in her eyes, heard the grief-stricken yearning in her voice a hundred times. And you know her too, this one who would travel any distance, cross over any barriers, risk any social shame to save the life of a beloved child, a sibling, parent, friend. We know her well and recognize her heart-deep struggle. End quote. But Jesus, in response uh, to this woman, this mother, this Gentile of Syrophoenician origin, the response that Jesus gives her is, for my two cents, one of the most bizarre moments recorded in Jesus' ministry on earth, seemingly at odds with the compassion that he shows everywhere else. And to be perfectly honest, I have no idea why Jesus not only dismissed her request to heal her daughter, but also effectively called this woman, her child, every Gentile in Tyre and beyond, a dog, simply because they were not Jewish. Some folks chalk this uncharacteristic response up to Jesus being tired, having planned not to be doing any healing or handling of crowds at this point. And Jesus certainly got tired, certainly got frustrated at times, whether it was with his own disciples or with hypocritical religious leaders. We know that he often had sharp words at times for them. But his response to this woman is still just uncharacteristic of Jesus, who is so often quite compassionately open to the ways that crowds and requests from folks in need could change his plans. Other folks think that Jesus was maybe simply testing, perhaps even playfully teasing this woman in order to see if she would faithfully persist in her request and in her belief that Jesus could heal her daughter. 
but that still just seems to be a harsh and insult-laden test, one that he doesn't seem to lay on anybody else in his three years of ministry, and one that is, again, uncharacteristically in tension with the kind of patience, the kind of kindness that Jesus so routinely shared. So ultimately, brothers and sisters, I think this is just a hard passage that doesn't make a ton of sense on this particular front. I've asked God about it in prayer many times with no clear insight arising, and I imagine there might not be a full answer till the kingdom come when we can say to Jesus, Jesus, why did you call that woman and her child a dog, especially in such a vulnerable moment of need? It's important to note, though, as well, that this exchange is also one that's fraught and filled with a deep historical dynamic of ethnic tension. As is well established, Jews and Gentiles did not have a lot of love lost between one another, did not harbor a lot of respect for one another. Gentiles tended to think that Jews were dangerous for not worshiping the emperor, for not worshiping other gods, tended to find folks who were Jewish to be insular and odd for practices like keeping kosher, for stopping work once a week for the Sabbath, for circumcising their males. And Jews, in turn, tended to think the Gentiles were dangerous idol worshipers, perpetually unclean and outside the covenant with God for not following Torah. And the division of Jew and Gentile is, of course, emblematic of the kinds of divisions that we humans across time so routinely, so habitually make. Get a group of us people together, and we will quickly find ways to categorize, divide, discriminate, judge, and rank one another. Who belongs and who does not? Who is smart? Who is ethical? Who can be trusted? Who is hardworking? Who is beautiful? Who is righteous, worthy of things like resources, second chances, the benefit of the doubt? Who has value? And alternatively, who is dangerous? Who is not smart? Who is not to be trusted? Who is lazy? Who is unrighteous, unworthy, ugly? Whose life has little value? In Jesus' day, prime lines of such kinds of divisions were, again, between Jews and Gentiles, but also between enslaved people and free people, males and females, rich and poor. And as we know, across the centuries and across societies, similar lines have been drawn according to where you're from, how you dress, how much money you've got, according to your facial features, your hair, your skin color, according to your gender, your ancestry, your national origin, your regional origin, according to things like your educational background or your line of work your political views or your religious views, your age, your abilities, your disabilities. These lines of differentiation that we so regularly make with one another are not made usually to observe and honor the rich diversity of how God has made all of us, human creatures crafted uniquely and beautifully in God's image. But we usually make these lines of differentiation uh, historically as well as today in order to enforce ways that cut and injure and oppress one another, that undermine compassion and justice, that divide and devalue. And yet, despite that hostility of Jew and Gentile and all the divisions that are akin to it, there is thankfully, running throughout the Jewish scriptures, especially in the prophets and the Psalms, the affirmation that God is the creator of all nations, of all people, Jew and Gentile, that everyone is crafted in God's image, and that all the nations would one day flock to Jerusalem to worship God and to live in harmony with one another. The most famous passage in scripture on this front, of course, is from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, 
which reads, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Along these same kinds of lines, later in Isaiah, in chapter 49, Isaiah also has the famous prophecy of the Messiah, which declares that it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that prophecy, of course, also flows with God's promise to Abraham, as read by Paul and interpreted by Paul in his letter to the Galatians, in which God promised to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you may be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So with all those scriptural promises and all that background in place, knowingly or not, in her persistence, in her faithful pressing on Jesus, that Gentile woman of Syrophoenician origin, she sparked a moment, perhaps the moment, in Jesus' ministry of embracing and beginning the enactment of the reality of the fact that the Jewish Messiah is a light and a blessing to all the nations. Like Jacob wrestling with God until he received a blessing, like the widow in the parable from Luke's gospel pleading with the judge until she received justice, this Gentile woman of Syrophoenician origin persisted in her faith on behalf of her daughter. And Christ heard her, and Christ responded, and opened up the door to the mission and the healing power of Jesus Christ worldwide. A healing that was not only from demons, as this little girl had, not only from injury, as the man we heard hear of later, who was healed of his deafness and his inability to speak, not only of the healing of all those who suffered from illness that Jesus healed, but it's also a healing, as we've just been talking about, of the divisions between and across nations and groups of people. As Paul declared in his letter to the Galatians, in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith, and there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And similarly, as Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and his regulations. His purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Now, shifting gears a bit from that vision and that call for healing across lines that divide us, I think it is also important, really important, to look at the healing of body and spirit in our passage this morning as well, and to consider the role of healing in Jesus' ministry in general. The Gentile woman who came to Jesus 
she declared and told Jesus that her daughter was afflicted with a demon. Now, some folks take demons as a metaphor or a symbol for the destructive impulses that wound us and those around us. Others take demons as literal spiritual forces in the world, tempting and luring us to our worst selves as individuals and societies. Demons like those powers and principalities that Paul talks of, that form and fashion families, communities, and countries, customs and laws that harm and that oppress, that foster the worship of idols of money or power or pleasure. In the Discipleship Committee's summer book, uh, Learning to Pray, by author James Martin, Martin describes this kind of demonic force, what he calls an evil spirit, as something that can be, quote, frightening if you think about being possessed, that can be off-putting if you just don't think it's there and you roll your eyes, that can be confusing if you have no idea what such an evil spirit could be. But Martin goes on to write, nonetheless, opposing forces are always at work within us, some forces from God and some from not, not from God. And basically, we feel pulled between good and evil, between hope and despair, between selfless and selfish impulses. He goes on to write that this may sound antiquated and alarming to talk about an evil spirit, to talk about demons, conjuring up images from films like The Exorcist, but all of us have felt within the pull towards selfish motives, uncharity, the pull towards evil, the temptation. And moreover, we can see what happens when we give in to those kinds of impulses, Martin writes. I imagine every single one of our lives, and unquestionably every single society in human history, has seen what happens when we do, when we do succumb to those kinds of evil impulses, those alluring temptations, all those kinds of divisions and hostilities we were just talking about. But however you take demons, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter was suffering from something that was undercutting her spirit, her heart, and her mind, dragging her down destructive path for herself, for all those around her, and Jesus healed her, as he had done so many times before for so many others. After that passage with this little girl who'd been healed from that demon, we also then hear of the man who was also a Gentile, who could not hear or speak, who was brought to Jesus, presumably by friends and family, loving and caring advocates for that deaf man as the Syrophoenician mother had been for her daughter. And we hear how Jesus healed this man as well. And as I noted at the outset, the Gospels, of course, record Jesus regularly and routinely casting out demons, healing people uh, all over the place. But they also regularly and routinely record Jesus moving on from town to town, from village to village, from city to city. And that's always raised this question in me that undoubtedly, no matter where Jesus went, there were people who got there too late who didn't hear in time that Jesus was in town, or who, for whatever reason, weren't able to get to him. No matter where Jesus went, the need undoubtedly outstripped what even the creator of the universe incarnate could offer in finite human form with just two hands and two feet. Jesus, of course, also gave his disciples authority to heal and to teach, which they unleashed to varying success. But still, even if they'd healed everybody in Galilee and Judea and the surrounding areas, there would have been people who lived too far away, who never even knew that Jesus was there while he was on earth. The specificity and the finitude of Jesus' healings raise questions about the role of those healings, 
the role that those healings played in his ministry. And I think if we consider it, there are really three primary roles that Jesus' healings played. The first, of course, was just the immediate blessing that it provided to those who were healed. The immediate blessing of healing for those folks and for their loved ones. Uh, that was clearly a fundamental role that these healings played. The people in front of Jesus, literally in front of Jesus, needed help, and he helped them. As such, I think these healings also serve as an example of the kind of care that followers of Jesus are called to show others. Uh, Jesus was showing us in his healings how to love and care for others, not simply in word and speech, but in truth and in action. And healing care for others, particularly through things like medicine, as well as through spiritual nurture and listening ears, is a way in which we serve as God's hands and feet, eyes and ears on this earth. As Douglas McCleavely writes in a prayer that he wrote for medical providers, uh, there is no malady, no sickness, no injury, uh, or there is no end to the malady, sickness, and injury and disease in this broken world. So there is no end to the line of hurting people who daily need my tending. Therefore, give me grace, O God, that I might be generous with my kindness, and that in this health and caretaking vocation, my hands might become an extension of your hands, and my service a conduit for your mercy. And yet, as critical as those first two roles for the healing in Jesus' ministry are, as critical as it was to directly help those folks who are right in front of Jesus in need of healing, as critical as it was for Jesus to show the example of how we're to care for one another and tend to one another. I still think if those were the only two roles that Jesus' healing during his ministry on earth played, it would have been insufficient. Because not to be a downer, but from any and every record we have, every single person that Jesus healed at some point, whether it was the next day, the next month, 20 years later, at some point, those folks, again, succumbed to injury and illness, to suffering, to death. And furthermore, as we were just talking about, the need for healing vastly outstripped even all of the healings and miracles that Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry. And that is, of course, a vast need for healing that's carried on from Jesus' day through the millennia to today. Which is why I think there is a critical third role and reason for Jesus' healings during his earthly ministry. And that third role is that they were a sign. They were a sign, of course, of Jesus' power as creator and redeemer, but more deeply a sign that suffering, illness, death, loss, they're not the way God intended or intends the world to be, but rather that healing and wholeness and flourishing in body and in spirit are what God intends and what God has in store. I think Jesus' healings were not only a blessing to those who received them, not only an example of the kind of care we're called to show others in need, but those healings were also a sign and a symbol of the deeper healing that Jesus brought and accomplished through the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting that Jesus secured in and through his life and his death and his resurrection a life and a death and a resurrection in which God was with us as one of us to bring us back heart, soul, and might into deep love and relationship with God our maker and into deep love and relationship with our neighbors near and far 
that we might flourish together under God, carrying on God's healing work here and now, even as we await the full culmination of God's justice and mercy and flourishing in God in the world to come. For all of these things, brothers and sisters, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.